these words this morning in just this brief time, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that this is your word and that you are a God who speaks. Lord, there's many of us in this room right now who need to hear what you have to say. And I pray that you would take your words, Lord, that you would write them on our hearts, that we might follow you in faithful obedience. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. As a church, last couple of weeks, we have been focusing on really what we do as a church. We've been talking about our mission as a church, that we want to be a place that um, makes disciples who pursue Jesus in everyday life. And we've been talking specifically over the last three weeks about how we do that, right? We gather, we worship, we grow in community, and we go on mission. That is what we do. This morning, I want to take a different twist, the same sort of subject matter, though, and I want to talk about who we are, who we are, okay? That was what we do. This is who we are. Many of you have a really awesome vision for what you want to see this church become. I sure hope you do. I know I have a vision for what I want to see this church become, right? And as we think about who we want to be, we have to remember that that vision has to be first rooted and planted in who we already are, okay? Now, there's a tricky thing when you think about identity. Many of us in this room, when somebody asks you the question, who you are, oftentimes our mind slips into answering that question by naming what it is that we do, right? I am a teacher. I am a musician. I am a pastor. I am a custodian, right? I am a lawyer or a doctor. We answer the question primarily by saying what it is that we do. Now, that's not always the best way to answer that question. In fact, I would argue it's, it's not a good way to answer that question at all because oftentimes what you do changes, right? Oftentimes what you do changes. That's why sometimes folks, when they approach the end of their career, it can be a, a difficult time of their life because their identity has changed. They no longer do what they had always done. So they ask themselves, who am I? Right? Well, folks, we don't want to answer the question, who we are, by what we do. We get to answer that question by what has been done for us. And that's the, that's the good news of 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Is it gets right to the very heart of who we are as a people. This morning, I really have two points but I'm going to make it easy for you. I'm going to give you slides. Normally, I don't provide slides, but I'm going to give you a few slides. And I know, slow down. It's a little crazy up in here, right? Am I in the right church? What's going on here? Um, right, it's a fresh paint. Yeah, it's just getting in my head. Okay. Um, and these two points are actually going to be the same. It's actually going to be the same point. Okay. So the first point is that we see in, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, as we begin to discover who it is we are, who, we, who it is that we are. That's right grammar. I'm not totally sure. Um, the first thing that we see is that he calls us. He calls us something. You are called. You are called. And he calls us four things. We see this in the first part of 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. 
It says, but you. Now, before we get into who we are, let's, let's think about who is he speaking to. Peter is writing this letter, and he's writing it. We see in the first couple of verses of chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So who is it that Peter is writing to? Peter is writing to Gentiles who are Christians, who have received the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've handed their life over to Jesus as the authority of their life. They have been sprinkled with his blood. They have been cleansed from their sin. They were followers of Jesus. They're not Jews that became Christians, though. They are Gentiles who became Christians. And we know that they're scattered around the area. So this letter is a little unique in the sense that it was written and it was circulated among those who were scattered. Those who were scattered, they were a different group of people. They came from geographically different locations. They ethnically could relate to each other in different kinds of ways, right? They weren't one homogenous group. There were different types of people scattered throughout the area. What else is unique about them, and you see this as a thread that is written throughout the book of Peter, is that one of the things they're dealing with in that time, in that place, is persecution. They're living on the margins of society because they are not accepted into society because of their faith, because they're followers of Jesus. And so as a result, they're, they're dealing with a tremendous amount of persecution, a tremendous amount of, uh, of suffering is no doubt going to come their way. And Peter is equipping them, telling them how they should live. And so it makes complete and total sense that he would key in, he would zone in and focus on their identity. If they want to have any chance of living the life that Jesus has called them to, if they want to be followers of Jesus, they have to know who they are. And this is so helpful, especially because who they identify as is being rejected by the broader community. And it could be very easy, very tempting for them to abandon their identity in Jesus in an attempt to minimize persecution, and to make life just a little bit easier. I don't know if you felt that same temptation. It's not easy living in our world as a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you've realized it or not, but the broader community doesn't accept the values of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, doesn't always claim Jesus to be God, and it can be difficult to navigate our world as someone who identifies as a Christian. Peter's words to these Christians are an encouragement and a reminder that if they want to persist in the faith, they have to be confident with who they are. This is who he's writing to. First thing that we learn, he calls them a chosen Race. It's interesting to note that all four of these things, see, Peter is speaking specifically to their corporate identity. They're a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. They are a people that belong to God of his own possession. Right? This is a corporate identity that these people share. He says you are a chosen race. This idea of being chosen by God, this principle of choice is a principle, it is a thread that is woven throughout scripture, right? 
If you were to go back all the way back to Abraham and you would see that Abraham didn't necessarily volunteer for his role, right? God chose Abraham. He called Abraham. And if you were to just continue to follow, you would see that it was through, through Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Isaac. We, we see in the, the Bible as the story goes on that God chose to continue this, to make this nation, this people for himself through Jacob, not Esau, right? God is a God who chooses, who chooses. And he looks at his people, us here this morning, and he calls us a chosen race. This is not a geopolitical understanding of what it means to be a people. This is not a race of people that is determined by the color of our skin or, or the language that we speak or even a shared common culture. This is a, an identity, a corporate identity that transcends all of our other identities. And it is the identity that we first and primarily identify with. So you can be a Christian teacher. You can be a Christian American. You can be a Christian Democrat. Oh. You can be a Christian Republican, just to make it even, okay? All right? This is, a, this is an identity that transcends all of our other corporate identities. And it is an identity that we understand to be rooted in God's choice. He has chosen us. Folks, that should be good news for you this morning. Because right? I don't know what you come into this room with, but I know what I come in here with. I know what lies in my past. And to think that God would choose me. Folks, this should humble us, right? This should cause us to respond in praise and worship. He chose us. He chose us. This is a revolutionary idea that God chooses us. He also calls them a royal priesthood. Now, what's important to know that if you want to really understand the book of 1 Peter, you, you kind of have to know the Old Testament. The whole book, the whole letter is littered with, with images, with words, with vocabulary, with stories, and with sayings from the Old Testament. And so I'm just going to read you a, a chunk of just a couple of verses here in Exodus 19. And, and as I read this, you're gonna, it's going to sound familiar. Okay, This is Exodus 19, verses I'll go four, five, and six. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So when God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and he, he sent Moses to lead them right through the wilderness, he called them his people. He called them his treasured possession, right? His treasured possession. And they were to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. And this is an interesting thing for him to be calling 
his people. Because we know that there are priests that he appointed through, that would come through the line of Aaron that would be used within the nation of Israel to, to perform a really specific role. And when you think about priests, you kind of think about them in two different categories. One, there is sort of their functional use for God. What it, the function was that they performed. They are the this sort of intermediate position. They had sort of a twofold task, a job that they kind of went in both directions. They would teach the people God's law and they would bring the sacrifices of the people to God. And so the priest then, they were to ultimately bring God to the people and they would bring the people to God. And what he's suggesting here is that these priests, we, by our very definition, we are a representative people. And our task is to represent the living, true God to the world and to bring the world to the knowledge of the living God. This is also how Paul saw his role in Romans 15, 15, to bring God to the nations and bringing the nations to God. They had a sort of a functional role within the life of Israel. But they were also a separate people. They were a special people, priests in the life of Israel. There was something unique and special about them. Not just anybody could be a priest, right? And I think sometimes today we, we take that same sort of Old Testament understanding of what it meant to be a priest and we apply it to the church. And oftentimes the way we can approach church is it is the pastor who is the one who, who, who I need to go to for help. Just the pastor. He is the special one. He is the special one who can, who, who's the only one who can really have, he's the closest one to God. And if I can't get to him or the people who are up front, then I just don't stand a chance. But Peter, as he writes these words, he, he calls those who follow Jesus a kingdom of priests, right? So they, they represent, they bring God to the people and they bring the people to God. And it's not just the pastor he calls this. It's not just the paid staff of the church he calls this. He calls those who are Christians a royal priesthood. Every single one of us who identify as a follower of Jesus is a representation of God to the world. And likewise, we bring our concerns from the world to God on behalf of the people. Every single one of us identifies in this way as we follow Jesus. He also calls them a holy nation. Now, we've talked a lot about what it means to be holy. And many of you, if you were to ask yourself the question, or if somebody were to ask you, what does it mean to be holy? Many of us would say, well, it would start with an understanding of being separate from or distinct from, set apart. And that is true. Christopher Wright says this. He says, something or someone is holy when they get set apart for a distinct purpose or relation to God and then kept separate for that purpose. So it absolutely means being set apart. But if you're, you know, I want you to think about Isaiah chapter 6. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that passage, but it's a famous passage in the, in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah gets this picture and he sees um, the Lord seated on a throne and there's these angelic beings that are surrounding the Lord, right? And, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. As they, as they circle the throne of the Lord, they sing, holy, holy, holy. And if you were to substitute the word separate for holy, separate, separate, separate is the Lord of hosts, it kind of loses something, does it not? 
right? Doesn't it doesn't have the same sort of ring. Set apart, set apart, set apart. It's not quite the same thing. Some of us may think holy and we think simply morality. And there's, there's truth to that. Being holy definitely speaks to a, 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 a type of morality, being moral, right? But moral, moral, moral is the Lord of hosts. Again, it just doesn't quite get to the heart of what it means. Folks, at its very, the very center of its understanding of what holiness is, it is the adjective that describes God. Holiness, in its purest sense, is God. God, God, God is the Lord of hosts. Holiness, at its, the very center of its understanding of what it means, is God himself, God's quality. And if you were to go out, it sort of works in these sort of spheres where if you were to go out from sort of the center, so much so that even the things that are associated with God, can, we can say, are holy. So the garments that Aaron wore in the temple... Right? Those garments were called holy. The, the shovel that was used to remove ash from the altar was covered in bronze. You could say that it was holy because it was associated with God. It was set apart for the distinct purpose of serving God himself. And the same can be true for us even more so because we are image bearers of God. As we live our life, we reflect God's character to the world around us. We bear his image. We represent him. We are a holy people. We are a holy nation. Lastly, we see that we are a people for his own possession. We saw in 19.5 of Exodus, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people's of all the earth. You know, something that is owned by somebody who's really important immediately becomes valuable, right? I was in high school, one of my favorite musicians was a, a guitarist by the name of Buddy Guy, a blues guitarist, and I just loved Buddy Guy. I've seen him multiple times. The first time I went to a Buddy Guy concert, um, I was up close with my brother. We were like right by the stage and he was playing blues. It was just fun. I mean, he just, if you've ever seen Buddy Guy, he can just work a crowd like no musician I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he's just, he's a phenomenal, one of the best blues guitarists alive right now, but he's also just an amazing entertainer. Well, at the end of the concert, Buddy Guy took his pick and he just threw it in the audience, right? I don't know if anybody's ever been to a Buddy Guy concert. He actually was in downtown here not too long ago. It's kind of like his signature move, all right, is he takes his picks and he distributes them graciously among his fans, just throws them out. Well, his pick, uh, there was a, a period of time where everything that was Buddy Guy, he was big into like polka dots. So he had a polka dotted guitar, black with white polka dots. It was pretty cool. Uh, but he had these polka dotted picks that he was throwing in the crowd, and I got one of them, okay? He's like my favorite musician, right? That pick, that pick for me was tremendously valuable, not because of what it was made out of, not because of its phenomenal polka dotted whatever pattern all right it was valuable to me because of who owned it who who, who it was that pick belonged 
too. Right, just like Kurt Vonnegut, if you were to go into the Kurt Vonnegut Museum, you will see they have a room where you can kind of like, they've set it up to, to look like his writing room. There's a typewriter that looks like his typewriter and a desk that looks like his desk where he wrote stuff, right? Well, his actual typewriter is not the one that you'll sit down and pound the keys on. His actual typewriter is in a glass out front that you can see, right? This is the, the typewriter he wrote Slaughterhouse-Five from or whatever, right? It was valuable because of who owned it. Things suddenly become valuable when somebody of tremendous importance owns them, right? The same is true for us. God calls us his possession, his treasured possession. There's no one more important in the universe than God himself. And so immediately, because we are his unique possession, immediately we become tremendously valuable because of who possesses us. This is a foundational understanding of how we should live our life. It shows us how we should live our life. The fact that every person who follows the Lord Jesus, who bears his image to the world around them, is tremendously valuable. Folks, this gives us guidance in how we treat one another. Guidance on the words that we speak to one another and how we value human life. But it also, hallelujah, it also gives us a tremendous understanding, not just on how I view my brothers and sisters, folks, but how I view myself. Think about it right now. You are a treasured possession. Treasured possession. Now, some of you are here maybe with a spouse. You're like, oh, I know. Carlos treasures me. I know. You know what I mean? And Carlos is good. Carlos is a good dude. If you don't know Carlos, get to know Carlos, right? But you are a treasured possession of the creator of the universe. You, right now. And he knows. Like, there's no secrets from him. We can do a good job of keeping stuff from each other, right? But there's no secrets that you can keep from God. And he still calls you his treasured possession. Folks, this is awesome. This is, you know, at the school, we do a catechism to teach the Bible. And the first question that we ask, that we teach the students here at Faith Academy is, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and in death? And then we teach them the answer to that question. And the answer to that question is that I am not my own, but belong to God. That you are not your own. You belong to God. So you have value. You have worth. You also have a responsibility because of that. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. Okay, so that is who he calls us. That's who you are called. Okay, now the next point, you are called. See how I did that? <laughs> you are called, right? Now here's the deal. That's verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, comma, that you, that you, this is who you are, that you, for a reason. There's a purpose behind that identity that you have. 
There's a purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Folks, he's given you this identity so that you can proclaim his excellencies. This is who you are, and this is what he expects you to do with that. As we think about what God, we want to see God accomplish through our church, like I said before, it's rooted in an understanding of who we are because of what he's done. We are chosen. We're priesthood. We're holy. We are of his possession. Belong to him. It's who we are so that we can put his glories on display. So that we can proclaim, as Ian read to us in Isaiah 43, 21, so that we can proclaim his praise. This is what we have been called to do as a people. And again, it's rooted in who we are. Charles Spurgeon says, every Christian is either a missionary or they are an imposter. So if you're here this morning and you identify, you are follow Jesus Christ, you have been sprinkled with his blood, you're a follower of Jesus, according to Charles Spurgeon, you're either a missionary or you're an imposter. And every one of us needs to see this. Again, it's because it's who, rooted in who we are. Two things I want to just point out about this calling that he has given us. First of all, I want you to see the God-centered nature of this calling. He has chosen us. He has treasured us. All this choosing and treasuring is designed ultimately to exalt God. Okay? So, as good as all of that stuff makes us feel, chosen, holy, royal, a possession, as good as all of that is, check it out. You are not the point. Okay? You, you, you ain't the point. You just aren't. You are not the point. God is the point. He has done all of this. Yes, he's done it for us, but ultimately he's done it to put his glory on display for the world to see. God is the point. That's why in Psalm 96, 1 through 3, we can say, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the people. As we think of the, what we're trying to do, we are not trying as a church, if we want to reach our community, to just invite people to ourselves. That's what we're not doing, right? As great as you are and as much wonderful stuff as you are, have to offer, you aren't the point. What we are designed to do as a people is to draw glory, to draw attention, to draw praise to God. This is a God-centered mission. But the second point is, I need you to understand this, is that when you participate in this mission, it's what's best for you. It's what's best for you. When you step into this, this transcendental purpose, until you step into this transcendent purpose, you will lack fulfillment. You will lack fulfillment. You will lack satisfaction until you give your life to this purpose of God. 
Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. So here's the deal. As we step into the purposes of God, give our lives to God, God opens up our eyes. So we see light. It's why Jesus can say, come to me and find rest. Drink from these waters and you will never thirst again. As we embrace God's mission, what God is doing, his purpose throughout all of creation, we suddenly find ourselves in a place where we finally understand our purpose where we feel a sense of belonging. Folks, God is an amazing God. And he's designed this thing ultimately for himself. And the best choice you can make is to get in on it. The best choice you can make in life is to say, sign me up. Sign me up. Okay? Now, a couple of things, just as we kind of close. I want to get real practical real quick. Um, as a church, we want, to, um, we want to be a people of God who fully understand who we are, who we are because of what Jesus has done for us, right? We want to be an encouragement to one another. We want to help one another grow deeply in the gospel and applying it to our life so that we can be the people that God has designed us to be. And we also want to proclaim his excellencies to the world around us. We want to direct praise and glory and attention to God. We want to reach our community. That's what we want to do, right? As we have kind of repositioned our church from that side to this side, we see this as an awesome opportunity to do just that. Okay? Now, you may think, okay, the room is exactly the same size. So, I mean, it's got just a different shade of gray on the walls, right? Is it really that different? And, and I would just suggest to you that, hey, we, we are in a place now where people can actually find our church. I think that's a good thing. If you are the first time that you've been here, um, we want to welcome you. So glad that you're here. Last week, it had been a lot harder to find our church because you would have had to go somewhere else and, you know, it just would have been difficult, right? And so we want to position as we build this, this building out. One of the goals that we have is to, to reach the families that are close by this place. I'll tell you right now, one of the biggest challenges as we move forward for doing that is how we love, care for, teach, and lead children. It's one of the bigger challenges, not just for us, uniquely us, for any church, okay? And one of, the, one of our goals as a church is to be a place that families come, they feel instantly loved, they can see themselves in a community where their kids are also loved and cared for. One of the greatest ways that we can do that is how we treat them on Sunday mornings when they walk through these doors, okay? Now, here's the deal. We need help with that. We need help with it, okay? Um, we have one person who's been leading children's ministry, Renee. She's not here this week. Um, it's probably been like, if you know Renee, it's probably been about 10 months since she's actually sat in a worship service with her family, okay? That's no bueno. It's not good. We need help 
We need help where this is concerned. Our goal is to be able to offer children's ministry. Now, when I say children's ministry, what I'm not saying is the minute service starts, the kids go to classroom and you don't see them. We love having children in here. Okay, we love, I love having children watch moms and dads, you know, their brothers and sisters in Christ singing praises to God. It's tremendously valuable, okay? The way we envision it happening, our goal, I'm going to tell you our goal first, and I'm going to tell you what I need from you, okay? Our goal is that by October, just a month away, that we would be able to offer preschool, you know, nursery, all the way up to like, you know, junior high every single week. That's our goal, Okay? In order to do that, we need about twice as many volunteers, probably more like three times, because there's a lot of folks who are out there two or three Sundays a week serving with the kids' stuff, okay? What we envision it looking like is that families would come together in worship service, that they would sing songs, that the kids would be in the worship service um, until the message is taught. And then right when, you know, preacher comes up to, to preach the word, the children would be dismissed, they would go for about a 30-minute lesson, and then they would come back in towards the end of service. That would be all of the kids that are in elementary school on up. Okay? In order to do that, we need more people teaching. We need more people teaching. Okay? Now, some of you may think, I don't have the gift to work with kids. Okay? And we want to, I don't know, acknowledge that maybe that's true. Right? Um, some of you have never tried. And I would just encourage you, maybe now is a great time to try doing that. If you are here as a couple, this is, I just, you guys can talk about this. This is, you know, God didn't give this to me or anything like that. But it's just, this might, this might be a way that we can make it a reality, okay? If you as a couple, husband, wife, is, each of you would consider giving one week to serving in children's ministry a month, right? One week a month. How about, no, no, no. One week every other month, Okay. One week every other month. So between now and December, you would only be in there. Somebody could do the math for me real quick. What does that work? Twice. There it is. Okay? That's not that huge of a commitment. That's not a huge commitment. But it would be a tremendous blessing to our families. And for folks who are coming here, it's one of the first, it is the first question a family asks when they walk through this door. It's what do you have for my kids? And quite often we can say, I got that seat back there. Okay? That's all I got. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to make you feel guilty. But I, I just want to ask for some help where this is concerned. So here's how we're going to do it. The next two weeks, we're going to have an opportunity for volunteers to come together and to be trained. Okay, we're not just going to stick any, anybody in there and say, good luck, go get them. All right? And we want to give you some training. These two, so on the 15th and on the 22nd, will be right after service. It's only going to be for about 45 minutes max. Okay? And you're never going to be leading something by yourself. Okay? You would never be leading something by yourself. Um, you only have to come to one of these, though. You only have to come to one of these. So if next week doesn't work, come on the 22nd. Okay? But for me, what we see this, we see this as a prime opportunity to really reach the families that are right in our neighborhood, that are right close by here. Oftentimes who come here and we don't have anything for their kids, and so they check out. What our goal is with children's ministry is to help kids understand exactly what it is that we just got done talking about today. Who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. And if you were to just, I mean, just read through First Peter, you would see all of the Old Testament language. We need to use this as an opportunity to teach this Bible to our kids. Okay? And we can try to do that on Sunday mornings, but there's obvious challenges where that doesn't always connect. So, that's the one ask I want to ask from you today. Is consider, pray about that. Next two weeks, 
children's ministry. And the commitment would only be between now and December. Okay? Sound good? All right. Why don't we go ahead and stand up? I'm going to pray for us. And then we will, worship team will come up and we'll close in worship. Father God, we are, um, as we just consider what it is that you have done for us, Lord, and who you call us, I pray that the natural reaction in our hearts and in our souls, um, Lord, would be to just worship you. None of this do we deserve. We deserve the complete opposite of this, Father. But in your grace and in your mercy, you've chosen us. Lord, and we um, just want to worship you and thank you for that reality. I pray for some of us just this morning leaving here today, um, just the idea of belonging to you being treasured by you, Lord, I pray that that reality would sink deep into our understanding of how we view ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We ask these things in your name. Amen.